Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. And here we are in part two. Uh, If you haven't already, part one of the interview with Brad Evans was the last episode. And although not technically required to enjoy and appreciate all the insights and interest involved in this episode, I highly recommend, we highly recommend you go back and listen to that one first. But uh, without without, uh, further ado... Here's part two of the conversation with Brad Evans. So, Brad, we discussed uh, the politics of violence generally. Um, Now, how about uh, fascism in particular? Well, I think, you know, any star point in any discussion um, around this topic beyond the semantics, um, we have to raise, I guess, the fundamental question concerning, you know, what does it actually mean when we utter the word fascism? So what do, what do we mean when we actually utter that word in itself? And and in that sense, what images does it actually invoke in, in our minds? And, and then kind of beyond that, we can say, well, you know, does the word have any resonance truly beyond, you know, the dismissal of uncomfortable views or positions which we just simply find, you know, unacceptable or we think are intolerable? And I think any discussion of fascism today... Um, has to begin from a considered appreciation of our historical present. And what I mean by that is, you know, first of all, is how do we get ourselves into this position? And what what are the conditions that allow for a liberation of certain modes of thinking? So if you understand fascism as, as the liberation of a certain mode of thinking, especially a mode of thinking where the violent exclusion of others is normalized because fascism operates through the normalization of the violence of exclusion, right? But I think there's an interesting point also. That it's not just simply about people are excluded. And I think Giorgio Agamben, again, is right to you when he says that, you know, this kind of violence is an inclusive exclusion. We include people, include people into our realm of significance, our realm of concern, in order to abandon them, right? So it's not about just letting people be. It's, sim- it's about we include them as a security concern in order to exclude them. And I think that is how we see the fascist dimensions to sovereignty operating. Now, in this regard, I think, you know, fascism does remain then very poorly understood if it's simply tied to regime theory or some pure claim to a political identity that's neatly preserved in time. And I think not only do we need to be very alert to the social phenomenon of fascism, why do the masses get seduced by these ideas? But there's also a need, as you know, as Gilles Deleuze would say, to continuously recognize and confront our own shameful compromises with power. And I think this places very particular demands on critical theorists and anybody who engages in public forms of expression. Um, what kind of ethics do we adopt and recognize the ways in which we sometimes might shamefully compromise in order to get a message across, mm. but how that in itself can actually do more harm than good in terms of trying to work through this very real and visceral problem. Now, do, like do, violence... Do you, have a, do, you have an, uh, do you have an example of that, Brad, by, by chance, uh, of, of, say, theorists or academics um, shamefully kind of compromising in that way, or, or you know, perhaps not intentionally, but... Uh, not thoughtfully being aware of, of, the, of the, the contribution there? Well, I think we can kind of see it very much in terms of, you know, this constant countering fascism, first of all, with outrage. So this countering fascism with, you know, yet again, Trump has said this, you know, I'm completely outraged and I'll channel my outrage in a way which does nothing but to talk about this guy. 
right? So in that sense, you know, and rather than kind of saying, okay, you know, what might a non-fascist way of living look like? It's all about critiquing this fascist system and kind of stopping there, right? So it's, and, and that to me just adds more to people's frustration and confusion and kind of, I think we have an ethical obligation to, of course, confront fascism, but also be kind of clear that there are alternatives are possible. Otherwise, we get stuck in that, right? So, and, that, and also, that, that's a, oh, oh, go ahead. I was going to say that's a long critique of the left is that it's so much on the critique and, and, and not enough in terms of the alternatives, the possibilities. I mean, we have Ernst Bloch and Frederick Jameson and, and, and so forth. But really, the, the focus and what people tend to, to hear from the left is simply uh, reaffirming that that felt uh, oppression and terribleness without providing those uh, those alternatives. I think that's Yeah, right. ab- absolutely. And I think, you know, the one thing we can say about the left historically is it's been as a project that represents a profound failure of the political imagination. It's it's still tied to very dogmatic understandings of what politics might mean. And, you know, and I think that has been, you know, part of its failure to mobilize and actually get youth genuinely interested in what the left might possibly be for the future. Now, I think also there's, you know, there's, there's another perhaps much more pernicious aspect, actually, of certain academics or certain writers who would still hold on to this idea that the role of the academic is to remain objective and impartial, right? Mm -hmm. So um, now, you know, I I teach violence. What does it mean to teach the Holocaust from an impartial perspective, right? What does it mean to, you know, what, what does it mean to say, well, actually, you know, I don't feel something or my subjective stakes are not affected in any way by reading Premo Levi or, or even if I read the history of the global slave trade, I, you know, that I'm somehow not affected by this. So I think, like violence, I think I would, you know, strongly maintain that there's no neutral position when it comes to fascism. Right. And because the power over life itself recognizes no distinction, you know, power is immersive. We are brought into this. And and I think actually there's nothing more appealing to the fascist than a passive position when it comes to its emergence. And and I think, you know, so for those of us who are trying to deal with this, I think, you know, those who would say that we need to study or engage with this new phenomenon from some cold and objective distance are actually complicit. And I think that, 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 that to me is a real problem, that kind of level of complicity. And, and in that regard, you know, I think just as then fascism, I would argue, is, remains the main strategic adversary of our times, um, I think there's no more compelling reason for any of us to write or express than to try to connect and feel with the world's suffering and its beauty. Right. So that, for me, is the fundamental thing that drives me as a writer. And I think it drives anybody who is genuinely concerned with the ethics of how the world might possibly be. And in that sense, for me, you know, to to write and to engage with these problems, especially the problem of fascism, means we have to face the intolerable. And it is to confront directly the forces of nihilism, because I think it's the nihilistic which leads ultimately to the denial of the human. So I think that's where, you know... We need to start our discussion that we are not impartial in this, and nor should we think ourselves as being impartial. No, it's very good. It, ju- it just seems uh, like we're going back again and again to the problem of uh, imagination and political imagination and, and what we can think of as ways of being together that might be different. Um, and it seems that the, the reliance on the nation state, uh, especially on the right, is, um, you know, as... Um, 
you know, it's socialism or barbarism for a reason, right? That, that the going to the nation state and nationalism is as a recourse to the shocks uh, of neoliberalism and, and the harms done by that. So when you, when you think of kind of a, a non-nation state alternative, people simply think of global capitalism. <laughs> and so if, if that isn't something that, that, that shows any comfort or, or uh, a solution, people can't conceive of something that's not national in response to it, it seems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think also that this current appeal back to you know the nation state. I think there's, of course, you know, we get, I'm reminded always of Walter Benjamin's essay on the critique of violence, when he says, you know, those who make these constant appeals to nation re- require a certain mythical violence, right? So there's this myth of you know, and you see this mobilized constantly with Trump and this idea of being great again. Right. And this idea of great again, of course, you know, for the, the lived experience for the vast majority of American citizens has never been great, right? But so where this nostalgia appeals back to, we don't really know. But it's but it certainly has a visceral effect. And I do think there's something in again, you know, in terms of you look at the legacy from from the collapse of the Berlin Wall, and you almost have this kind of decade of optimism after the Berlin Wall, and people like Fukuyama declaring the end of history. And then all of a sudden, you know. You will have liberal peace and the great advancement of liberalism across the world. Whereas actually what we encountered is the proliferation of the new wars, new violence, and then September the 11th happens. And it's almost like if you look at, you know, beyond the level of the kind of um, the spectacle and the crass discourse, Mm. the one thing which I think Donald Trump did remarkably effectively was mobilize ontological vulnerability. You know, Mm. I'm kind of reminded, for instance, of like, you know, Barack Obama's um, speech he gave at the 10th anniversary of 9-11, when, you know, he sat there, he stood there in ground zero saying, look, another attack's inevitable. Right. And it's kind of like, you know, and our societies are now fundamentally insecure by design. People don't want to hear this. Right. So people want to feel secure. People so but rather than kind of saying, like, how can we build a better future of peaceful cohabitation? It's easier to appeal back to what we know. So actually, you know, how can how can we feel secure in this new age of complexity, you know, globalization, vulnerability? Well, you know, we know in the context of the 1970s, that kind of happens in, in the Middle East in terms of the appeal back to Islam, right? Because Islam makes people feel secure again. It's no different to the kind of narratives which Trump's pushing forward. It's, you know, I will right. make you great again. We will appeal back to the nation state. You know, it's a remarkable admission when you think about it from Trump. You know, he must be the first president in American history to say, hey, we're no longer great. <laughs> yes. Right? yes. Yeah. You thought you were great, but you're not, right? So... And that mobilization of everyday vulnerabilities, it's, you know, I'd like to think he did it in this way. He obviously didn't, but it's like as if Trump has read Judith Butler and decided to mobilize (laughs) her, right? You know, it's this logic of ontological vulnerability, which everybody now is. and, And therefore, I can appeal to this. But of course, we know historically fascism always does that. Fascism always appeals to narratives of the everyday. Nobody understood that better than Wilhelm Reich in his book on the mass psychology of fascism. You know, fascism is not about questions of sovereignty. You walk down the street and ask anybody what sovereignty means, they couldn't give you a definition. But they know what job security looks like, or they know what job insecurity feels like. And I think that's where you see this mobilization of vulnerability to real devastating effect, actually. In thinking about fascism, like any other... uh term right it's it's a contested one and and the meaning changes with use but to to use the the wittgensteinian family resemblance it seems like there are um you know 
a number of ways to, to use the term that are consistent with, with an, an ideological framing that, that uh, coheres and, and that might be useful for us. Um, so what, what, are, what are some of the, the defining features of, of fascism in your mind, would you say, Brad? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, I think it's worth beginning by also kind of pointing out, you know, that, um, up to, you know, prior to 9-11, really, there was um, a kind of a concern, first of all, with using the term fascism. Mm-hmm. Right? So it was almost like a reluctance. And actually, fascism just became a default term you would use against anybody who kind of disagreed sure. with you, right? So, like socialism so on the left, fascism on the right. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. But, then, but then you have this kind of post 9-11, you know, return to fascism. Interestingly, of course, in the context of Islamo-fascism, mm. there's that kind of return to the narrative, and of course, also the emergence of the, you know very clearly far-right movements right across Europe and also in the United States of America. Now, one of the concerns I continually have with narratives around fascism actually is once again falling back into very neat conventional 20th century tropes around fascism. Mm. It's kind of as if fascism exists in some historical box which we just suddenly open and all of a sudden fascism looks like skinheaded guys you know shouting z kyle or a bunch of school kids giving a nazi salute and therefore that is fascism right whereas we know you know fascism as as a form is you know it adapts and it changes and and it's a mutatable monster so i think we need to understand just for instance maybe as capitalism is profoundly different from in the 21st century to the 20th century, fascism is also profoundly different in the 21st century to the 20th century. So I think that's the, the start point now. But I do think, you know, that doesn't mean to say, so I'm interested less perhaps in the ideological purity of fascism, but understanding fascism at the level of power, right? So what does fascism look like at the level of power? And in that sense, we can say that fascism demands and requires naming and diagnosis. We are able to diagnose fascism. And I think, you know, for me, there are a number of key elements. And I think we can begin this, um, again, by turning to me, one of the one of the most important thinkers on the history of fascism, who, you know, was himself an actual victim of Nazi fascism, which was Walter Benjamin. And Walter Benjamin, in his understanding of fascism, points out, you know, Fascism is all about the reduction of politics to pure spectacle. Mm. Right? So fascism is all about the spectacle. And the spectacle in this way works at kind of an aesthetic and an effective level. And in that regard, we can see that you know, fascism is all about the colonization of the imagination. It, and it's viscerally felt. You know, we, we know it mobilizes itself through representations concerning disempowerment, enmity, but more positively, you know, the, the resurrection of, you know, old ideas concerning authenticity, belonging, greatness, and so on. Mm. And in that sense, I think, you know, we see that f- fascism kind of feels and signals its way into existence. And mm. this is, to me, one of the most important points, however, is that in order for this for fascism to do this, it requires outrage, right? It requires outrage on part of those who will subscribe to it. The white outrage today, now the white man is the victim of history, right? So, so there is this outrage, but also fascism thrives on the outrage of others. And I think the outrage is actually part of the marketing strategy. So that, to me, would be the first style point that we could think about fascism is, you know, it is the mobilization of outrage. And and it does it at a very clear, spectacle, aesthetic and effective way. 
that's that's really interesting in terms of the the necessity of having the outrage of the the other group as well of of uh, de- defining your outrage in conjunction with the outrage of the other group. So uh, Trump loves the fact that Black Lives Matter is there. He loves the fact that the, the left is is mobilizing against him um, because it's that dynamic. It seems that creates is it that it creates the spectacle or or, or what what is the production that that those two um, forces of outrage oppositionally are. Are doing what? What work is that doing? Well, I, I think it's kind of it's textbook Carl Schmidt. Right? So it, it's this kind of a narrative of you know the more I can create enemies, the more I can be certain about who I am. Right. So and and in that sense, it, it, it's purely dialectical in terms of you know, and the dialectic then will normalize the conditions of violence, normalize the conditions of enmity, normalize the conditions that society is under siege. And that narrative we know is what allows fascism to thrive. That, that those conditions of, you know, almost like the siege-like mentality, the world is against us. And, and in that sense, the outrage, as you say, you know, it's, I lose sight of every single day, Trump makes a new enemy. Right? He's constantly making enemies. But, but that seems to embolden him further. It's, you know, it does it all the more because it's kind of the more we can create these enemies, the more we can create these conflicts, the more we can create this outrage. It's not just a distraction tactic. It's all about the mobilization of a politics of the visceral, which the more people seem to be outraged by him, the more people are talking about him. The more he becomes elevated, the more he becomes, you know, and, and I, so I think that, you know, that is part of the marketing strategy, which only seems to entrench his position from his supporters, because he can kind of say, look, they're attacking me once again, and so on. So. The, um, the, this mobilization, the, um, you maybe had this in mind, though, but, but this, you know, talking about sort of fascistic impulses on the American right, the, uh, the refugee caravan... Um, seems to be like just the absolute perfect example of what you're talking about here um, where, you, you know, you have at like in terms of the people who actually made it to the U.S. border, like a few hundred, maybe a thousand um, bedraggled, you know, like mostly families, you know, women and children. And through this this media propaganda apparatus that, you know, blew it up into this like invading army basically. And, you know, sent the, sent the military down there and they're, you know, shooting tear gas at them. And so, and it's just this, like, you know, the, this, the production of, of, of people to hate, you know, and, and things to be afraid of that you can, uh, you know, soothe by inflicting, you know, uh, violence on them. Is is it sorry, Brad? Just to follow up real quick, is it that the spectacle created shifts the focus onto both that friend enemy distinction of which you spoke, and so you're on one side or the other, uh, or on Trump, but not on the actual children that are getting tear gassed and and the actual violence mm-hmm. being done to the victims of it? Is that part of mm-hmm. part of what it does? Yeah, yeah, but I also think I also think you know in terms of you look at the contemporary fascism and but also historical fascism does this. It doesn't. It's not just neat reductive kind of dialectics between friends and enemies in an old Schmittian way. The enemy can be anything in which you want to project a certain sense of endangerment upon, right? So, and and I think you know in that sense what fascism is also about then is 
the liberation of prejudice, right? So the fact, the fact that fascism allows for the liberation of prejudice, and mm. you know, and this is this is particularly notable today with the migrant or the refugee, and the, the example that you use about the migrant caravan, for instance, you know, and we know, for instance, that fascist you know groups and leaders have been remarkably adept at scapegoating, right? Making the scapegoats of you know of people and often vulnerable populations to further the power takeover in which they're trying to, you know, articulate. And I think that there's, there's something really terrible at work there because, you know, what's really at stake there is in the context of like the migrant caravan, you know, it's all wrapped up in the regalia of security, right? The security discourse. And that, you know, is not just about security. It's about the reduction of politics to the question of pure survival. Now, and I think that's another quality of fascism is precisely this reduction of politics to the question of survival. Nobody understood the consequences of that better than Premo Levi. Premo Levi's testimonies of Auschwitz shows in the starkest and real forms what happens when you reduce politics to the level of pure survival. Mm. Well, as he says, everything becomes possible. The everything becoming a possible genocide in the name of precious space and precious people. So Levi understood that. And I, but I do think there's also, you know, something really kind of, you know, purposeful we need to ask here is, that, you know, what kind of world do we live in when the crossing of a border is deemed to be a violent act, mm. whereas the tear gassing of children is acceptable? Yeah. Because that is the world in which we seem to inhabit today. And that to me is, you know, if there's ever a, you know, if ever the term fascist has any meaning in the context of violence, it's certainly in that dichotomy. How do we make sense of that? It it seems to me that such a confusion has to be bound up with not just being confused about what, I mean, the confusion of what's dangerous, it seems to be bound up with the confusion over what is or isn't violent. Uh, What is harm? Who's being harmed? It's all totally muddled together, it seems. Yes, no, no, absolutely. Well, there is that, um, you know, because that's another point, which I think in terms of, you know, when we're thinking about um, understanding of, you know, of fascism as well. And and again, it's something which Hannah Arendt understood was the one thing which fascist regimes, you know, really do is they stop you getting any sense of bearing about what's right or what's wrong or what's, you know, or what is violent or what isn't violent. And, and that kind of collapse of meaning and, and dare say, you know, truth. a certain courage to truth, right? So, and, and that kind of, you know, that inability to tell the difference between the truthful and the outright lie, right? And that, that's the one thing, again, which we see fascist regimes historically doing over and over. Now, I do think also we have to be mindful, however, of a certain reaction to that, which is also, I think, kind of pernicious. And we see this in terms of almost now this re- retreat back into a certain liberal puritanicalism as well, as if the liberal somehow has is now the fountain of truth and knowledge. Mm, right? Whereas, mm. you know, whereas these these leaders are, represent everything they represent is the fake. And and you've seen this in terms of the, like the criticism of like postmodernism now, right? Uh. Postmodernism is you know, if you want to understand Donald Trump, blame Michel Foucault, right? which is completely <laughs> preposterous, right? But you, well, he has been reading really, Judith Butler, it appears. So I well, I mean, absolutely, yeah. So let, let yeah, let's take it all the way back to the source <laughs> and Michel Foucault, absolutely. So, um, but but I do. I do I do think, you know, that there is, there is something in that kind of, you know, retreat back to a liberal puritanicalism we also have to be kind of mindful of, because if we understand that fascism is mutable, you know, 
we have to acknowledge that there's also such a thing as liberal fascism, right? So we don't want to retreat back into a different two competing visions of puritanicalism because that is equally dangerous in terms of, you know. Um, and I think one of the things we need to kind of recognize then in this, you know, is, and it's kind of like this, um, this whole debate concerning fake news, you know, um, which I'm, I'm, I always find myself completely turned off whenever I hear the term fake news. You know, it's, it's as if Orwell never walked the earth, right? You know, it's <laughs> that's the presentism. It, it's the it, same presentism with a, you know, no sense of history. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of you know we used to call it propaganda, right? But it's you know, yeah. but it's now called fake news. Um, so, so I, I think you know, but. but and it's, so it's not about then kind of collapsing ourselves or searching once again for the castle of pure reason, right? right. You know, we know there's a fictive dimension to all politics, right? Indeed. Because all politics imagines a future. So there is a fictive dimension to it. So we can't lose sight of that. So what I do think is, you know, and one of the challenges then is, you know, is that, you know, fascism to me attempts to kill the imagination. It attempts to you know, stop us steering history in a different direction. So that's where, you know, imagination becomes part of our armory against fascism in that regard. So. Does it attempt to kill the imagination or to co-opt it and, and, and basically substitute the imagination of the fascists in, 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 in substitution for the collective's possibility of imagination? Uh, in, in other words, at least with national socialism, uh, the future is very important and, and what, what will be new, what will come... Um, to be that will be great seems to be something that is, is called upon and there seems to be a shaping of the imagination but not allowing the collective to define it or to think uh to think otherwise in terms of of what is and what could be perhaps maybe well i think also you know one of the characteristics of fascism is the suffocation and denial of political difference Right. So fascism works through that suffocation. Now, you're right, you know, fascism is a pedagogical and aesthetic force, and it has its own particular political imaginary. And we often see this notion of a political imaginary attached to a certain vision of manifest destiny. So that is this idea, of course, of history as being some natural unfolding. But again, I think this notion of manifest destiny today is again very different to the logics of the manifest destiny of fascist movements in the 20th century. You know, the idea of the Third Reich as a regime that would last for 2,000 years, and it was constantly progressive and very technologically driven. I think the narratives of fascism today are much more nostalgic, much more, you know, trying to kind of have this almost like a politics of preservation now. And I think we can't divorce that understanding from, you know, the resurrection of a certain understanding of the Anglosphere, you know, the, the way in which now the Anglo-white man is now the victim of history. There's a certain mobilization of that narrative. Um, and I think, you know, it almost kind of connects then to, you know, what we might see as a perverse logic of a certain, you know, Anglophobia, right? It's, mm -hmm. no, it's as if this Anglophobia now exists. And you see this kind of perniciously entering into the intellectual mainstream, actually, even from people such as Niall Ferguson onto Jordan Peterson, right? This, this notion of the, you know, the white male is now this kind of victim of historical forces. And so that manifest destiny fits that imaginary very much. Um, but it's an imaginary which we know which kills difference. And what is a creative act if it's not the production of difference, right? So mm. it kind of takes the creative imaginative and kind of suffocates it and just puts it to the use of propaganda. Mm. So, yeah. 
I think, you know, what, what's also worth pointing out, I think, is in terms of, you know, um, we know fascism depends upon this certain um, authoritarian leadership, right? And, and I think, but I do think we need to ha- try to make sense of the ways in which authoritarian leaders also operate and the way in which they come across to us. And I think one thing which we often seen with fascists actually is they historically, whilst we might rewrite them now as demonic, at the time of their appearance, they were far from that, right? And I think the fascist we often seen actually plays the clown and often tries to mm. trivialize politics in a way that kind of normalizes mockery. Right now, Theodore Dorner reminded us of this, and you know when he talks about Hitler and people in in Nazi Germany, when Hitler first appeared, they never took him seriously. You know, they they mocked him, they laughed him, and you see this actually articulated in if you look at the anti-fascist artworks of people like John Hartfield, the way in which Hitler was mocked constantly and was the source of ridicule. But I think you can see this kind of the fascist kind of, you know, kind of absorbs this and, and embraces this because hmm. maybe it's part of a disarming strategy, right? The, the, you know, actually, I'm not so dangerous. You know, I can play the clown, I can play the fool. But there's also a real kind of perniciousness to this. And I um, I think, you know, and there's something different, I think, between the clown and the comic because we know, for instance, the comedian, you know, will often laugh in the face of tragedy. And I think some of the greatest um, critics of history have been comedians, right? Um, but with the fascist, this kind of constant attempt to play the clown, it's often about laughing in the face of others. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, I've lost sight of the number of times in which Trump plays the clown, right? But he does it in a way to constantly mock the vulnerable, whether it's mm. the disabled or the victims of sexual violence. You know, mm. he will constantly play to this. And mm. there is something, therefore, in that laughter that, that he does, which kind of reminds me of Patrick Bateman from American Psycho. Right. You know, we know these psychopaths from history play clowns. They play this kind of mocking position and... That, to me, is something far more pernicious than the monstrous character. We need to be alert to this because, and perhaps it's no coincidence, it seems to me to be a tragic metaphor for our times. I was looking on Netflix the other day for a film, an American cycle now appears in the comedy section. (laughs) So so what does that tell us about contemporary politics? There's something in that that we need to really be alert to, I think. That's a great point. It's it's, uh, pernicious indeed because... Comedy is also a way that um, that people seek release, right, from from their stress, anxiety, suffering, and to appropriate comedy in service of of marginalizing and dehumanizing the vulnerable. Um, it, 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 there's so much about our subject formation and affective state that fascism um, acts upon, and I think employs that is is really pernicious and hard to see at first first blush. So that's that's helpful. Yeah, um, and I th- I think that's also a good a good reminder of how uh, kind of misleading like the the popular media depictions of Nazism uh, kind of are. You know, it's like we, you you watch you know movies and and TV shows and such, and it's like the what are the Nazis? Well, they're guys who walk around with black trench coats and like skulls on their uniforms, scary, and they scary. just it, they. The, 
they just immediately ma- murder people all the times and like that's not really you know nobody would vote for that kind of you know uh uh obvious yeah right people people who are just like saying i'm evil and i kill people like that you know fascism when it when it when it comes to you know obviously there was like the stormtrooper element of that but like that was a a popular uh uh in the context of 1930s germany like that was a that that had a lot of political resonance and it's so it's i think i think americans underestimate uh maybe less so now but certainly before you know underestimate how uh compelling a fascist like politics could be because it's not going to be a bunch of people just like saying you know i'm evil and i do evil things and i'm darth vader it'll be like you know i'm super patriotic and i'm you know i love jesus and the flag and the and and so on and so forth and it, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, well, I think you know. Go to, yeah, well, I think you know. You're right in terms of you know. In order for fascism to mobilize itself, it has to be seductive, right? It, it's mm. not going to be this kind of demonic figure. But also, I think you know, part of this kind of narrative is, you know, again, Hannah Arendt understood this when she followed the trial of Eichmann, and she, you know, when she says that you know the thing that marks out Eichmann is not that he's monstrous or demonic. He was just terrifyingly normal. He was banal, right? And and I think that banality of fascism is far more dangerous than any kind of demonic historic representation. And I think you're right in terms of, you know, if we're going to develop a critique of, of violence in the present, we need to have a much better understanding of the history of fascism, the history of violence in a way which doesn't simply play into this caricature of absolute evil or, you know... Um, it, it's kind of it's much more banal than that, and and that's why it's such a formidable recurring force because it can appear in the politics of the everyday, and and I think that's where we need to be constantly alert to it because it shows a remarkable capacity to regenerate itself, and yeah. and the ways in which it can it can play at the level of you know what we might call the psychic life of power, right? Why is it you know or there's to paraphrase you know Spinoza says you know. Why is it that the masses learn to desire their, their, their oppression as though it was their liberation? Mm. What is it about that? You know, why, why do we give ourselves over to power in this way? What does it promise to give us in return? And we are actively invested in this. And I think that's the, the much more difficult challenge than just to simply say fascism is evil ideology. Right? Because it asks much more difficult questions of ourselves continuously. Our own, each of our own shameful compromises with power. Mm. Yeah. So what what is the seduction? What does it offer? What what is it empowerment? Is it uh security? Is it both? Is it um a vision of the future? Is it regaining what is lost? What what do you think is most seductive about what is on offer in fascism? Well, I think in terms of looking at contemporary fascism, it's we see it as a response to a world which has been presented to us as complex. A world in which, you know, um, we've kind of had this kind of, you know, the the advent of the complexity sciences, which tell us the more we seem to know about the world, the less we know, the more questions it raises. There's no such thing as foundationalism anymore. So, you know, identities are multiple, that life itself is on this constant search for truth, but 
Maybe, you know, answers are only temporary, that life is actually very fleeting, the knowledge systems we know are fleeting. Now, this is, you know, this is a regime of science, which has got a great deal of, you know, verification. And, but this idea then around the normalization of uncertainty also leads to the normalization of insecurity, the normalization of vulnerability. And it's almost like the fascist has kind of responded to this and said, well, actually, you know, we, we, we agree with this, but people want to feel secure. Right? People want to know who they are. People want to belong. People want to, you know, and we can argue that in many senses, a lot of those kind of um, positions about, you know, well, you know, people not wanting to feel vulnerable, people, you know, wanting to have jobs, people not wanting to feel like if they go onto a tube that it's going to blow up, right? Sure. These are natural, everyday human reactions. But it's the way in which that kind of discourse and narrative has been mobilized to steer history in a much more, you know, regressive direction. And I think that's where it kind of operates. It offers clear answers to a complex mm -hmm. world which steers history in a very particular direction to this. And in order to do that, it relies upon a great deal of tried and tested historical methods mm. in terms of blaming the other, blaming the migrant, blaming, you know, so on and so Sure. That's quite a, quite a challenge to, to tell people who need simplicity because, boy, life is complex and difficult and challenging and exhausting. Uh, to, to offer in response something that's necessarily complex to even understand how fascism operates is, is complex and challenging. Um, so that's, mm -hmm. that's a tough spot we're in. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, maybe we can just maybe, you know, in terms of fascism, think about it. If we understand that fascism is also the triumph of violence, right? So fascism has to constantly intimidate, right? Mm. So it depends upon a certain intimidation. And fascism is the triumph of violence, and it can't sustain itself without pointing to conditions of violence, right? So um, I think the question this kind of raises then is, well, how do we counter violence? How do we counter the violence of fascism? Right? And to me, you know, as tempting as you see all these arguments, people say, well, you know, punch a fascist in the face, right? Well, you know, what does that really mean at the level of politics, you know? And... Because it only once again feeds into the outrage. If fascism is all about violence, how do you defeat violence with violence? Right. So, in that sense, to me, that strategy seems to be to me to be completely self-defeating. This this you know this count this counter in fascism with violence, and you know, but that doesn't mean to say that you don't confront fascism. And I'm in this regard. I'm you know I'm very much in agreement with Todd May when he says you know. There's no greater confrontational force in politics than the power of nonviolence. Right? Nonviolence is confrontational. It stands up to violence and says, no, you know, I'm, I'm often reminded of, you know, one of the most remarkable photographs in the history of political struggle of the lone protester in Tiananmen Square, yes. right? who confronts the tanks and in doing so reveals everything you need to know about the violence of that regime in that very singular moment. Right? And there is something remarkable about the power of nonviolence in the face of fascism. If fascism, you know, if fascism depends upon the mobilization of populations, it cannot annihilate everybody except in the end, right? because fascism is ultimately an annihilative project. But it has to have people to carry it, it along. And I think, you know, to me, the best way to counter fascism has to be through the educative force of nonviolence. Mm. And 
to deal with it at the way in which you know as i say in terms of thinking about it imaginatively and think and, mm. and in that sense drawing upon maybe different tools rather than the conventional mm. violence and business as usual which often seems to be the case so love and hope and nonviolence, that those need to be the things we form in ourselves and spread to others in a way that confronts, that's not just some kind of peacenik uh, passivity, but some confrontation with violence, with a force greater than violence, perhaps, with the, the power of love that can actually shape and change the hearts and minds of those that would otherwise support the violent regimes, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's two quotes I think I'd like to kind of... Um, readouts which I think really to me capture what the stakes are and the first is by Jean Carroll and I don't know if you know Jean Carroll uh, wrote a poem which became the narrative for Alan Renee's Night and Fog um, which is one of the most remarkable films in the history of you know Nazi fascism mm. and he, the, the the poem kind of ends and this is the one of the ending quotes from Night and Fog and it says um and there are those of us who looked concernedly at the ruins as if the old concentration monster were dead in the rubble. Those of us who pretend to hope before this distant picture as if the plague of the camps had been wiped out. Those of us who pretend to believe that all this happened long ago and in another country and who never think to look around us, who never hear the cry that never ends. Mm. And I think there's something really powerful in that quote where, you know, the one thing that if we can take from history, it's a warning about the monstrous capacity for fascism to reinvent itself. And the, one of the things that we do need to recognize is that, you know, fascism does constantly reappear and it, and it can appear in forms which can pe- appear unexpected to us. And I think that's one of the first points I'd like you know, to think about. And the second quote is by the artist Gottfried Heilwein, who... Um, He's a phenomenal artist, and as, as he says, um, nothing scares authoritarian regimes more than art and free creation. Why would Hitler burn mountains of books and paintings and ban all arts? Why would Stalin, the master over life and death of almost 300 million people, a man who commanded the biggest army and secret service that ever existed, be afraid of the poems written by Anna Akhmatova? Why would Mao be so obsessed with destroying China's cultural heritage? Why would FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, while denying the existence of organized crime in the United States, put so much effort into harassing and investigating every artist of any significance, from Hemingway to John Lennon? I think there's something really meaningful here in what Heilwein says, and it's precisely your point. What kind of politics do we want in the 21st century if it's not fascistic? Well, it's certainly not a politics which retreats back into the liberal, puritanical, liberal, enlightenment ideas of reason alone. We need a politics which is much more attuned to what we might call the irreducible, a politics which is compassionate, which is based on a politics of love, a politics which has a distinct imagination to it, and a politics which perhaps is more of an art than a science, Mm. a politics which can imagine better futures, and can lead to the liberation of difference rather than the liberation of prejudice. Um, I got so, yeah. That's that is that is, that's that's very good. Yeah, we're talking we're talking about political, um, you know, counterforce to fascism, and you know, one thing that did pop into my mind, uh, you know, about the 
for, you know, first the Tiananmen Square protests was that they were successfully crushed, right, by the, the commun- Chinese Communist Party. And I guess second that, you know, the the way that that Hitler was defeated was with, a you know, huge armies. Right. Uh, uh, mm. And so is is what you're saying about about like the the you know, the, the best way to defeat fascism within, you know, like Western societies or, or any, any society, you know, through nonviolent tactics, is is that like more sort of like preventing fascism from triumphing within individual countries? And, and that like, if you get to the point to where there is a Nazi Germany, and at that point, like, it's just like, you know, you end up with another world war. And at that point, you're sort of just maybe that like that, you know, with nuclear weapons is maybe just the end. Is that what you're saying? Well, well, I think it's, you know, um, it's such a pressing question in terms of and such a historically resonant question around, okay, could nonviolence defeat fascism? So can nonviolence defeat fascism? Now, it's almost a, you know, it's not just Antifa would make this claim, well, actually, you need to confront fascism with, with a certain violence, right? It's actually quite mainstream understanding in terms of conventional liberal trope that we needed war to defeat Hitler and his armies, right? So, yeah. and again, in terms of, you know, Barack Obama, you know, when he was, you know, um, receiving his Nobel Peace Prize, you know, he... He basically made the case for war and violence, right? Yes, it's what a remarkable yes. <laughs> thing, which which Obama does, right? It's kind of ah, here's you know, a peace prize. Let's peace... talk about violence. Yes, yeah, and you know, but but he also, you know, he, say, he says in the, in the speech, you know, nonviolence could not have defeated Hitler and his armies, just as nonviolence cannot defeat. Was it was it like Al-Qaeda. a a Niebuhrian type of approach he had, a just war uh, thing he did? I forget. Completely, yeah. It's very, but he says, you know, that you know. Um, to deny the need, you know, he says something like that. Deny, deny the need for violence is, you know, is naive, and it, you know, it doesn't account for the imperfections of man and the limits of his reason, right? Which is straight out of the Immanuel Kant textbook of why we need war, right? Um, but the one thing which, you know, in the context, for instance, of if we're dealing with like internal, even like micro politics, you know, um, I think, you know, we have to understand fascism as a macro phenomenon, but also a micro phenomenon. And I think we know, we know, even in our own personal relationships, we know people who constantly will behave in a fascistic way. And there's nothing more they thrive on than for you to confront them with your own anger and aggression. Right? It's like part of the whole performance for them. It's almost like you're validating what they stand for. Mm. And but I, I think, at, at, you know, at, at a more macro historical level also, there's, you know, it is okay. this question about, okay, could nonviolence have defeated Hitler? No. Um, and I think it's a question which we are constantly kind of told time and time again, whenever we think about the necessity of violence today. Well, you know, towards the last two years of World War Two, of course, nonviolence couldn't have stopped Hitler. No? But the whole of Europe was tearing itself apart in an orgy of destruction. You know, nonviolence couldn't have stopped anybody at that at that period, right? But nonviolence could have certainly stopped Hitler had there been a much more just settlement in the Treaty of Versailles. <laughs> so had indeed, we have given indeed. dignity to the people at that moment, right? Nonviolence, you know, if we have been genuinely committed to nonviolence after World War One, led to the widespread decommissioning of Europe, 
actually put an investment in terms of a just and equitable settlement for the German people, then yes, nonviolence could have defeated Hitler, right? But of course, so it all depends, as you say, Ryan. You know, is at what point in history do we bring our analysis into this, right? Now, that's right. The time we, scale. We seem to be at the very particular moment. You know, we're at a particular moment in history where we can ask the very same questions, right? You know, if, for instance, we think, okay, you know, whether we can talk about America now as on the thresholds of fascism or authoritarianism or right across the world from Brazil and elsewhere, you know, these, this emergence of a certain populism, which looks quite dangerous, you know, if it's certainly not quite a fascist regime yet, then... The potential is certainly there, right? And the question for us is, what do we need to do to stop this? This kind of seeming runaway train, which, as we know from history, can turn peaceful regimes into deeply violent ones very quickly. Just look at the history of Yugoslavia to see how quickly these things can happen. So. Yeah, it's, it's like a, the medical analogy would be, uh, I mean, as, as Machiavelli points out, that the farther along in the progression of the disease, the, the fewer options you have, and it's clear what you have to do. But, uh, but earlier on, it's harder to diagnose, but easier to treat in, in various different ways. And so it's, it's like telling a patient, well, nope, you know, proton radiation therapy is inevitable. Well, what if I just had a different diet mm-hmm. and healthy exercise from the beginning? Maybe I don't need to have, you know, these extreme, uh, extreme measures at the end. And, and maybe if we think long term at this resilient disease, which, which is fascism and, and, uh, and also, as you say, that the forms of violence that capitalism produces, if we try to think long term and change uh, from the beginning our ways of being together, perhaps those uh, extreme conditions and extreme measures won't be needed and we won't perpetuate the violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, it kind of takes us in terms of, okay, what's the end game, right? And we, we know, you know, fascism is a nihilistic project, right? It is literally a will to nothing, right? It's, you know, when the, the, the word nihilism comes, it's, it's nil, right? It, it, it leads you into this will to nothingness. And, mm-hmm. and it has its own kind of self-destructive, annihilative qualities to, the, to it. And, you know, it's, it's kind of then, okay, what kind of future do we want for our children? and our grandchildren what kind of future do we want to live in you know right. i certainly don't want to live in in a future on on an island which is puritanically white called the united kingdom which still <laughs> believes it's a colonization but nobody ever takes seriously anymore right so you know I, I don't want to you know so it's kind of what you know but i do think it's you know there's um we have to ask ourselves how do we get to this point and what you know again what um Foucault might call the history of the present and it seems kind of remarkable to me that you know 10 years ago if you'd walked down the street and you saw somebody with a sign you know which said the end of the world is nigh you know you kind of laughed them off and kind of said oh well you know this person's just one of you know these these local people who take the biblical thing a bit too seriously if somebody has that sign today you kind of call them an optimist <laughs> it's you know there's something about that that we need to kind of you know yeah i believe you mate you know and it's um so how do we how do we get to this point and what and what can we do differently right i think that's that's the real question for us yeah that sounds good i and i don't know if your uh analysis of contemporary fascism uh is bound up at all with your analysis of contemporary, you know, neoliberalism, and, and, and if there's a reason uh, why, you know, this late, uh, well, I don't know if it's late stage of capitalism, but if, if neoliberalism and the way that it operates somehow uh, makes it permissive uh, for the visibility of fascism, I don't know. It's just a curious uh, thing. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the um, one of the aspects which I think we need to um, to address when we're, we're talking about contemporary fascism is 
and I kind of you know tried to reiterate this that fascism is is a is a complex adaptive system like every form right. of political project right so it, 21st century fascism is profoundly different from 20th century fascism. And when we're accounting for the change in nature of political regimes of power, we have to account for the change in nature of technology and the change in nature of economic conditions. So, so in that sense, you know, we know neoliberalism or capitalism is very different from the 20th century. But also the technologies that we have at our disposal today are very different. You know, Hitler could never have imagined the power of new media technologies, right? As much as, you know, people, when people, they always say that the age is Orwellian, Orwell would never have understood the power of new media technologies today. And, and in many ways, Orwell is wrong. You know, Orwell would say, well, people fear the invasion of privacy. It's the opposite is true. People actually fear that they're not being watched, right? So, so I think there's, you know, so 21st century fascism has kind of almost latched onto this. And, and I think what does mark a difference, first of all, in terms of, you know, understanding the logics of fascism is how it precisely operates today in this realm of visibility. So, what you know, one of the things which Hannah Arendt meticulously kind of engaged with was in terms of what one of the defining features of totalitarian projects of the 20th century was how they depended largely on secrecy, or right? the secrecy of the secret services, or the secrecy of humans disappearing, or the secrecy of the concentration camps until they were kind of, you know, at the, um, discovered right at the end state. And I think the difference between that and 21st century fascism is it openly declares its appearance. And even though it kind of denies that it's, you know, it says, well, we're not fascist, it kind of does that precisely through this realm of visibility because it says we're not these secret regimes. We are telling you what we're about. And I think there is something profoundly different then in that kind of logic. And it's a logic which also, you know, that works through this kind of people's willingness to actively give themselves over to power, right? So mm. it's kind of like, you know, actively give over all your personal data because you can buy perfume quicker in the airport, right? So so yeah. there is that yeah. active, you know, participation in this giving over of something of the private and the personal and being seduced by the technologies which kind of make these regimes of surveillance and control possible through which fascism also feeds because... We don't really need those technologies unless you can make some claim to securitization really as well. So, so I think fascism really works in that new realm of visibility, which I think is very different. Now, also, you know, none of that also can be divorced from the change in nature of neoliberalism. Neoliberalism makes a spectacle of the individual. It commodifies mm. life in a way in which right. we have no option but to be present. Right? We have to be constantly seen to be visible, constantly mm. seen mm. to be constantly changing, adapting, you know, being mm. open to risk, embracing insecurity, embrace, embracing vulnerabilities. So in that sense, there is quite a, you know, a complex but certainly a a feeding off um, correlation between neoliberalism and contemporary forms of fascism and the more neoliberalism then appears to be in crisis the more fascism seems to be developing so so and and it's kind of interesting now you know I think it's almost like historically we used to kind of say oh well you know free market economics require liberal democratic states in order to function effectively well, China and Chile and all these regimes have shown that actually that's preposterous as an assertion. And actually, capitalism seems to thrive just as well, if not better, in conditions of authoritarianism. And, and I think in that sense, we can see um, the way in which 
fascism is particularly attuned to a certain historical juncture in the nature of capitalism or neoliberalism, which is very much in crisis. So I think that's, you know, we see that that correlation happening very clearly. I had a question for you. Uh, <clears throat> you know, when from the context of like, you know, writing about day to day economic stuff and reading about history, one of the most, you know, important background conditions to the rise of fascism historically is uh just terrible economic crisis um you know mass mass unemployment and or you know uh hyperinflation in the early 20s in germany you know what 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 allowed hitler to make the sort of argument that these traditionals you know traditional politics was failing um, and what you needed was extreme solutions that would just like cut through everything with kind of cleansing violence and whatever. Um, you know, when when these liberal states could not provide employment for their for their citizens, you know, like what, 32 in Germany, unemployment is 30 percent. And that's the Nazi electoral high tide in terms of the uh, the the Reichstag vote. Do you think that that, you know, Obviously, we have a lot of austerity happening, a lot of economic dysfunction, I think, especially in Europe. You know, there is mass there is like Great Depression level of unemployment in Greece and Spain still, even though it's been coming down some. Um, You think that sort of thing is relevant to understanding fascist like uh, mobilization today? Mm. Well, absolutely. I think understanding, if we're seeking to understand fascism at the level of the everyday and fascism as a social phenomenon rather than just simply some you know, grand ideology, we have to try to have a much more honest reflection on the types of angers and resentments that fascism is able to mobilize. And evidently, you know, the loss of a job, which is not just the loss of economic income, it's the loss of dignity, it's the loss of self-worth, the loss, the loss of the breaking up of communities, you know, that can very easily be mobilised. History teaches us this, right, that it's very easily to mobilise the, the angers and resentments of the everyday for the furtherance of these kinds of projects. And so I don't think, you know, And this is not in any way an attempt to try to justify what happens. But we do certainly need to have a much more rigorous conversation around why is it that a great number of people from white working class communities are finding a certain affinity with this, right? What, What are the conditions that makes that kind of thinking possible? And, and I think that really requires us to have a real serious, honest reflection. And I think, but I think it's not just then about the failures of a certain economic project, but it's, the certain, it's, a, it's a profound failure of the triumph of economic thinking in itself over the political, right? So I'm kind of reminded you, for instance, of, you know, like... Um, Friedrich von Hayek's book, The Road to Serfdom, you know, which in many senses is a remarkable book in its its critique of the way in which fascism emerges. But for him, the, to me, the problem with that is it's just about socialism, right? So, and for him, the saviour becomes the free market economics, rather than actually seeing that the fundamental problem is itself with fascism is all about the reduction of life to an economic variable. And Marxism can be just as guilty of this. And the moment we do that, if we tell people that your entire worth is predicated on economics, 
The moment the economy fails, people search for whatever political alternative. And it's often the ones which appear the most secure and meaningful to them in terms of an imminent promise that's, which fascism can tap into. And I think that, to me, is a much more broader problem, It's which something most all modernist projects do, whether it's the Marxist or the socialist or the liberal, or, you know, they all reduce life ultimately to this economic variable. And we need a different thinking on the political or what it means to have a just and dignified life, which doesn't allow then... So we have these economic crises, and then people suddenly feel worthless, and therefore they will find meaning and belonging because people want a valued life, in something which promises them those riches in a way which is very easily to mobilise, especially in relation to the fear of others. Yes, indeed. It, it seems to me that the, the best chance the left has to offer something beyond you know, man as economic man um, is to take note of, of Marx's uh, writing on man as species being and the ways in which capitalism um, takes all that creative energy, everything that makes us uh, unique and for, for those that believe made in the image of God, and spends all that energy alienating the labor in order to be able to pay for just your necessities and your survival, instead of very quickly meeting your survival needs and then having all that time and energy to flourish and, and do uh, you know all the, the poetic, artistic, creative things that really would fulfill people and, and make us flourish together uh, collectively. Mm-hmm. So I do think there is a, a leftist approach that could liberate human beings uh, from... So the problem is... You know, many on the right who are, whether they're Burkean or that they, they love Aristotle or Plato, they're right about the good life being superior to mere life, except they forget that we haven't yet taken care of the mere life for people. Mm-hmm. And so they skip that part. They skip ahead of that and, and don't worry about all the populations that are still struggling for mere life. So, so it seems to me that if we can ensure that everyone has mere life, then everyone collectively might be able to have a vision of possibility for the good life. Yeah, you know, this idea, the bare necessities. Very few people have this bare necessities for existence, right? So We have to play that song now. (laughs) Look for the bare necessities. But I think, no, I agree with you in terms of, you know, so the the, the Marxist intervention around species life, what might species life actually look like? Um, And, you know, something which was kind of picked up by Arendt in The Human Condition, where she talks about, you know, the need for, you know, and a return to this idea of the good life. But as you say, we still have no real viable conception of what that means. I think, you know, I think the, the work which Foucault kind of works through on biopolitics takes us some way, but to understand where it goes wrong, right? Because this idea of, you know, looking at a life which is progressive as opposed to regressive is often, you know, carried along with the regalia of race and, you know, the categorization of life into different species of life, which once again plays into the fascist kind of narrative. And, you know, one of the defining features of fascism is a biopolitics, right? It's, it's a biopolitics of the promotion of a certain form of life over, the, over other forms of life. So, so I think, you know, what might it mean to kind of develop, um, a, you know, a, a truly humane politics for the 21st century and a politics which is not exclusionary, you know, a politics which is, you know, plays into this idea of a non-fascist mode of living. And, you know, that is quite a, you know, um, still quite a resonant introduction, which Foucault wrote to um, Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari's Anti-Oedipus, where he goes through a number of key points about, you know, what a non-fascist existence might look like. And I think one of the ones which always stands out to me is, you know, is we need to get away from this idea of sad militancy. 
right? You know, the sad militant of history will only critique and will only say, you know, well, we know the world is terrible and, you know, we know the world is terrible. We live in an age of dystopian realism. We don't need another theorist to tell us the world is terrible, right? You know, what we sorely need is a new imagination for the present and a new, you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't continue to critique power and hold power to account, but it's how we can counter fascism. And I think, you know, in that sense, it's not it's not the task of critical theorists to do that, right? Um, but certainly it's the task of critical theorists to have more rigorous conversations with people who have the ability to come up with better imaginations for how the world might be, to listen to the poets of history, to listen to the artists, to engage with people who genuinely have a better vision of how the world might be. And I think that is something which is desperately needed in terms of thinking of non-fascist ways of living. Yeah, indeed. And it reminds me we should have artists and poets on the podcast as well. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Well, I think, I think, you know, the, the, one of the things which I found from um, doing this column with the LA Review of Books actually is, you know, a lot of artists uh, in particular have something really meaningful to say, especially when it comes, of course, to questions of aesthetics, right? You know, yeah, if, we want, if we want to critique the aesthetic, well, listen to how artists engage with it. And because they understand yeah. the consequences and significance of the aesthetic field, they understand how it works at the level of affect. They understand the need for, you know, for art to confront the intolerable, but, you know, and not all artists do this because a lot of art, contemporary art today is just banal, right? But there are certain artists who really get this and understand the political potential of the arts in terms of changing, you know, um, the way in which we think about thinking, right? And, and, I, and I think, you know, if we think about, you know, we're often told that we're image conscious. And, and that's kind of true in the sense of, like Deleuze says, you know, we, we always live within images of thought, right? We always relate and see the world in particular ways. And, and we're always projecting ourselves into the future in that regard. So the artists, to me, are, should be at the forefront of how any discussion of how we rethink the future beyond the, the nihilism of the present. They can help us stop making forecasts of the past and instead look to archaeologies of the future, right? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, completely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and actually, it connects up with with uh, our, our Kavanaugh episode. I don't know if, if uh, you had a chance to listen to that, but um, the, the ways in which, whether it's... Um, a Trump supporter, white working class person that we don't want to excuse, but neither completely locate the agency within their just poor decision making and forget the material conditions that gave rise to the ideology that seduced them. Uh, neither do we want to picture like a Kavanaugh as representative of, again, just a, a kind of a frat boy gone wrong when he, uh, it seems to me, is part of a whole superstructure created to um, succeed. You know, he thought he was doing all the right. Th it was very revealing when he was asked questions. He had like non sequitur answers about how he was valedictorian and all the, on all these sports teams, basically saying, I, I checked off all the boxes. I was the frat boy who did all the things I was supposed to do. And then, you know, I got into the right, uh, you know, elite universities. I did all the things and I was not told that I was not supposed to be misogynist, right? Like I, I was simply um, doing the best I could to be recognized and have the status uh, acknowledged uh given the culture that was was uh you know i was embedded in so it seems connected well i think you know first of all if we look at the um the emergence of trump <clears throat> trump doesn't appear like some alien from nowhere right and actually i think what trump represents actually is accelerationism 
Right? Uh, Trump has accelerated a lot of the logics of contemporary societies and just taken them to the nth degree. You know, the, the militarization of society, the hyper-masculinity of capitalism, the ability to freely say whatever you want, that everything's a spectacle, everything's a commodity. You know, mm. Trump just took the existing dynamics and run with them. So, you know, so in that sense, I fundamentally disagree with accelerationists because Trump is what you get if you accelerate these dynamics, right? So actually what we need with politics is to slow things down, not speed things up, because then we might have a bit more time to reflect, right? And I think right. that's one of the issues. Now, in terms of materiality, you know, um, fascism is a material project, right? And, and it's a material project which, you know, represents quite clearly a visceral takeover or what Brian Masumi calls a manic attack on the body politic. Right? It thrives in conditions of paranoia and, you know, and it represents this real material visceral attack, but also seduces people through a materiality as well. Now, mm. now whilst I think there's, you know, there's a distinct life politics at work here, I think there's also something kind of revealing, as you mentioned in the example, in terms of the true nature of law, right? So fascism is not a failure of law. History teaches us this, you know. Um, it's actually the triumph of what Derrida would call the force of law, right? Which is, but allows itself to be permanently transgressive. So, and, and in that sense, you know, the fascism, I think, is the normalization of the exception, right? And again, you know, a number of theorists have written about this, but we can see this with the appointment of Kavanaugh, right, where sexual violence had no bearing whatsoever, right? And this guy will now embody the future of law in the United States of America. So that idea of sexual violence doesn't play a part because it doesn't, didn't matter to the operation of law as it works within a particular regime of power. And there's something more at stake here. You see this in terms of, you know, the way... Trump will constantly claim counter claims of illegality. It was also put forward by Giuliani in very honest comments that he's done consistently where he says, look, you know, law is literally what we make it, right? You know, we are the, we are the writers of law, right? So it's, it's law is what we make it. And in, in that sense, you know, there's, you can see then the, the real functioning of law. And it's not so much then, you know, the idea of, you know, law operates in some pure, reasonable space which we can draw upon, you know. Law is the outcome of power struggles, and, and we can see this happening constantly in, in this narrative. Um, but, it, but I think it also takes us then on to, you know, what becomes legal and what becomes illegal. And one of the most shameful episodes, of, of the many shameful episodes we've seen, especially with the Trump administration, was the detention of children, right, and the detention of you know, migrant, immigrant children and separated from their parents. And and in this regard, you know, I, I do find myself agreeing with the Gamben when, you know, when he says that if you really want to understand any political project, ask which camps it produces. It will tell you. It will tell you everything you need to know about that project. So, if you want to understand Nazi Germany, well, look at Auschwitz, right? Or if you want to understand the war on terror, look at Guantanamo Bay, right? The defining paradigm for Trump seems to be the detention centers for children, right? What kind of regime do we have which makes this acceptable? And if it's not fascist, well, what name do we give to it? 
Right. 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 Do, do you think it matters that, say, even though largely, except for the Trump administration and those that, that support it, uh, you know, um, Korematsu was seen as a, as a terrible thing, maybe a necessary evil from some uh, perspectives of, of some right wingers or something. But that was at least in the state of, uh, you know, a massive world war. Uh, do you think there's something to making the war on terror, which is an abstraction and therefore perpetual, uh, makes permissive the kind of constant or just at any moment doing that kind of thing that used to be a state of exception, as you, as you, as you suggested, in a particular time and place in a particular temporal limited war? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the one of the, you know, if we look at the state of exception for over the broad sweep of history, it looks remarkably normal, actually, because societies go from exception to normality, exception to normality. And it's precisely through this exceptional crisis that we rewrite the rules of law. Now, in terms of, you know, the, the war on terror, um, nobody's declared an end to it, right? <laughs> and, and, and in that sense, it is, you know, but, but, what, but, but very few politicians actually invoke the term today. And that's because it's become so normalized, we don't even need to utter the term anymore, right? So, so the war on terror has become completely normalized. And the question then is, in many senses, you know, we're beyond war. You know, war no longer even needs to be declared, but we know it's global. We know it's internal. We know it's external. You know, the recent examples of the number of, um, you know, drone strikes which Trump has authorized, you know, they're increasing considerably, but it doesn't matter, right? Nobody, you know, no war's being declared on the regions in which we're bombing. And in that sense, once war becomes normalized, once war becomes the prevailing social condition, such that war is no longer even questioned, then, of course, we know that's precisely the conditions where everything becomes possible. And, you know, and and again, they kind of reminded of, you know, Arendt's kind of, you know, intervention there. You know, when everything becomes possible, that means certain groups have absolute power and others have none. And I think that is the, you know, the, the kind of the conditions that we're finding ourselves in today where border police are firing upon children with tear gas right Right. you know and you can take this question up later if if you like but i was just curious at some point with what you think of arendt's distinction between power and violence i think um i think there's something meaningful in arendt's attempt to try to say you know there is a distinction you know part of the problem with the rn sometimes is she can be a bit too essentializing um but then other people will you know critique other theorists for not having a definition right so um i think you know i do think we need a bit more nuance in terms of the different types of power between especially the power between and the power over right so the power over as opposed to the power between is different but I do think there's something meaningful in the context of thinking about fascism from what she did says because I do think that fascism often actually arises or certainly once it starts to gain momentum it perpetuates itself through a regime of violence which often points to the impotence of power, right? So the naked appeal to violence constantly means that you have no power, that you cannot convince everybody to follow your ideas. So, you you know, there is no kind of empowerment in that sense. And so often those who rely on violence are actually impotent when it comes to power. So I do think that there's something meaningful in the application of that to actual real-world events, you know, and and in many senses, Trump often looks very impotent, 
right? You know, and which is why then when he looks impotent, he becomes violent, right? He becomes in his language and his, you know, so because he knows, you know, he cannot appeal through the force of whatever argument to people's, you know, imaginary. So, you know, there's no, there's no creative imaginary with Trump, right? So, so in that sense that, you know, he looks very impotent in that regard. Um, This raises a a question I've had um, about, I don't know if you know Corey Robin, the mm-hmm. uh, the the guy at CUNY, mm-hmm. yeah. um, but he he's been arguing for a long time that Trump is a weak president and that he's sort of like the historical termination of like this brand of conservatism, and I think like as you're saying, it's true insofar as he has no mastery over the like bureaucracy. He doesn't know how to make things work. He's uh, enthralled to you know the moneyed people who really don't want him to do his like welfare chauvinism um, that he probably would do if he knew how. Um, but at the same time, I think that weakness, as you're saying, tends to make him lash out. You know, the fact that he can't rely on a majority. You know, it's like if, in a democracy, I guess like if you have someone who's going to lose, you can either take your loss or you can try to cheat. Or like just you know react with violence in some way do you think that there's that that's an accurate read of the situation yeah I agree with him to a point I think um, you know know, again we can see from history the ways in which brutal dictators often fall with a whimper sometimes right so because those regimes actually beneath the surface would look completely strong and authoritarian are remarkably fragile because they have real no power over the people. You think of the fall of Ceausescu, for instance, as an obvious example to this, right? The, yeah. You know, the, there's these strong people in history which actually, over time beneath the surface, actually, you know, because they've been relying on so much violence, there's only so long you can sustain that in a society which promises to seduce people through power, right? So, mm. so I, I think, you know, in that sense, one of the positive things that we can hold on to is the remarkable precarity of these regimes, the you know the impotence of them in terms of power. However, history also shows that these regimes are remarkably dangerous because the more impotent they look like, the more suicidal they become. And I, and I think that is where you know nihilism is very dangerous because it is it has these annihilative tendencies, you know, and you can see this in terms of you know the Trump approach to climate policy. It's completely annihilative, right? It's completely annihilative. Let's just, you know, eke out as much as we can from the last remnants of capitalism before it all burns, right? Um, and, and, and there's a real kind of, you know, there's, so there's an impotence, but there's also an, an annihilative tendency. And I think, so whilst we can kind of say, well, okay, you know, these regimes are weak and they're precarious and Trump does look often very impotent, Um on the other hand, that doesn't mean to say they're not dangerous. And I think that yeah. th- that's what we also need to keep in mind when we're dealing with that kind of, that claim, which is right, but also doesn't mean to say that they can't commit a great deal of violence before they fall. And I think that's, you know, that's the issue. So. No, it's a good point. But it, it's interesting, though, because Corey Robin also argued that, um, you know, as the, the liberals think that the courts will save us, and maybe that feeds into this apolitical view of of of, of laws as not being um, uh, something where power operates, and that's obviously wrong. 
Um, but, but, you know, the question of whether the courts are merely a force for violence or, or whether law and, and regime power is merely a force for violence, or if it can also be a, a check against uh, something that, that is fascistic um, is an interesting question. Um, it, I guess it's just a follow-up question. It, isn't there something we need to attend to differently with Trump and what he inspires ideologically um, that doesn't suggest he's just another Republican that operates similarly? Mm. I, well, I, well he, he's certainly not another Republican, you know, who operates similarly. I, I, I do think, um, you know, he has exposed a certain maybe truth about the way law operates, and it's now visible for everybody to see. Um, now, I, I certainly wouldn't say, for instance, well, you know, like some theorists, well, let's just abandon law altogether, right? Because, you know, th- 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 that would mean that, that, you know, that we don't think that anything is open to reform and transformation. And I do think, you know, we owe a great deal to the history of jurisprudence for rethinking what rights might actually mean. The trouble is it kind of stays still once it's it's achieved it, rather than actually recognising it's an ongoing process in constantly rethinking what the terms of rights might become for people yet to exist, but I, you know, but I do think um, to believe that law alone is going to save us is completely misguided and completely deluded, actually, in terms of the understanding the history of the operation of power. Now, what I do think is another thing in which we need to kind of have a better grasp of or understanding of is the way in which somebody like Trump can present himself as an anti-elite revolutionary in many senses right you know how does this possibly occur right? how does this kind of narrative you know it, it you know it, it's it is as absurd as the white man now being the victim of history right or trump as being a man of the people who understands their social concerns and you know follow me i'm the leader of the revolution right it's it's preposterous and absurd but he still managed to mobilize that and and I think that to me is one of the you know the most remarkably absurd you know it's it is kind of like we're living in Wonderland right you know I, he, he's also seen as an as an evangelical I, I literally white evangelicals think he's more Christian than Obama who is actually a church going man of faith yeah I, well but it's you know it it is the, the nonsensical has become true you know and I wrote it briefly about this you know to me there's no better caricature of Trump than the Queen of Arts from Alice in Wonderland, right? Yet as therefore it's true, right? And and you know, albeit on Twitter, right? But it's but but it's but it, there's something in that which I think is is remarkable in terms of the way in which almost any semblance of what might be truthful doesn't seem to matter, right? It, it just mm. becomes pure performance and pure, you know. And, and there's something which is, you know. It places us at a very dangerous moment in history. Do, do you know of uh, Harry Frankfurt's work on bullshit? No, I don't. But it it, it's it, it's interesting. It, it makes a distinction between liars and bullshitters. Uh, actually, I, I taught a course on campaigns and elections when, when Hillary Clinton was running against Trump. And actually, they fit perfectly into Hillary Clinton being a liar and Trump a bullshitter. And the distinction was this. Liars care about the truth so they can deceive you. And so they have actually a concern for what is true. Uh, bullshitters don't care if what they say is true or not. They have, no, they have a total disregard for the truth entirely. It's about the performance and what they are establishing about themselves and theatrically. 
mm-hmm. and it's about what you think of them. And, 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 and so we see supporters who think he's a winner, who think he's, he's strong. He doesn't put up with uh, the PC bullshit and this, you know, but he's, he's a supreme bullshitter because his, his performance completely annihilates any interest in what the truth actually is. Where interestingly, somebody like uh, uh, Hillary Clinton, right, has to know policy really well, has to know facts really well so that she can use them to her advantage. And, and uh, there's something to that, I think. Yeah. But again, we can connect that back to, you know, Trump is certainly not the first to do this. And just look at the ways in which, you know, the manufacturing of the going to war in Iraq, right? There was, you know, and as you know, Rumsfeld says, you know, truth is what we make it, right? It's, you know, we can, you know, and, and you know, Bush used to say, you know, he used to surround himself with people so he could sense the mood of a situation, right? You know, it's, Fascism feels its way into existence and truth is what fascism becomes of it, right? So I think there's there's something in that where, you know, this Trump's truth is him, right? He is the truth. And and in that sense, whatever he utters will be truth because it will be enacted into power. And and I think in that regard there is some something very brutal in terms of the onslaught of power which can operate without seeming mediation, right? And I think if you have a regime of power which can operate without mediation, in other words, power which believes that it doesn't confront any viable resistance, then that surely is the surest definition of fascism, right? A system which entertains no resistance whatsoever, where all forms of resistance are just basically either either people paid to resist, right? Which in itself reduces everything to a commodification, or is something which is profoundly dangerous to the rights of the nation. And, you know, and I, you look on it in amazement where there is this you know, remarkable shift between a black American footballer taking, you know, and, and standing and kneel for rights of people which they thought they should have won long ago, and that being seen as unpatriotic, and yet a bunch of school kids given a Zeke Isle, and that is the freedom of expression. That tells you everything you need to know between what is permissible and unpermissible, or who is allowed permissible political actions and who is not permissible actions in any given regime. So, you know, thank you so much, Brad, for for, for joining us and and giving us your your time and and, uh, thoughtful erudition and and some optimism as well that we we might um, emerge from these dark times uh, with with some calls for um, equal voices for beauty for poetry for art and uh for all those resources uh of love and the infinite that might combat uh the the nihilistic yeah well i think i can end just by saying you know that we need to keep hold of the idea that people do resist what they find patently intolerable and you know one thing we cannot allow is for the nihilists to prevail so maybe Amen. that's you know, Amen, brother. A, good, a good star point going forward so. yeah yeah thanks again